Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. To recap from past weeks, we've been looking at the structure of social cognition. It is symbolically constituted. We are free collectively to make things up. And what we make up influences our social and individual behavior. This is the function of myth. It's not important if we believe our myths or not. Their value is in coordinating our group behavior, sometimes in subtle ways that we don't understand, sometimes in overtly practical ways. Then there are things that we consider sacred, like wealth and fame, goodwill toward all beings, science, or America first, which sustain the most basic values of a culture. Then there are the many ritual enactments that communicate our roles and obligations. And finally, there is our consolidation into cooperative moral communities drawn together by shared values and regulated by norms and obligations. The symbolic space that defines the basis of social cognition is something we are all familiar with in our own experience, but which science has now only barely developed language or interest to apprehend. It's important to notice that our individual motivations as we participate in this human symbolic space can be radically distinct from those of the mundane world to which the apes are confined. Devotion, for instance, to social norms, roles, and communities, and to the sacred, can guide our activities selflessly under the right conditions, lifted out of self-centered mundane concerns, and it feels great, the affective experience of selfless cooperation, the uplift and elation is quite remarkable when compared to mere sensual pleasures, as the Buddha pointed out. The lack of cooperative social context in which this uplift and elation might be experienced, on the other hand, produces opposite results. Our emotions are reliable markers of where genetic adaptations have occurred, as I understand it. In this way, we are carried by the currents of society rather than calculated self-interest in search of personal security and sensuality. This is the alternative motivational structure in which our supramundane experiences lie, a kind of reward system evolved as an adaptation to override the system of pain and pleasure and self-interested craving. We inhabit or can inhabit a kind of transcendent dimension experientially. Artists, scholars, and great humanitarians feel this more readily than your average bloke, as do those increasingly rare 
religiously devout. Inhabiting this symbolic world is a prerequisite for the serious life, as I understand it. Unfortunately, tribalism is also a pervasive element, one group or community pitted against another. And in larger societies, although ways are often found to overcome tribalism, there are many opportunities for corruption in which certain elements of social structure are subverted for personal interest by the apes within us. They control the levers of our financial system, for instance. This seems to have begun with the onset of agriculture and has almost invariably led to social and economic inequality and the investing of power into an elite class. Durkheim recognized the symbolic mechanisms of society over 100 years ago, but it's only very recently that models of recent human evolution have corroborated his insights in a rather sweeping way. Durkheim also recognized that something was amiss in Western society, that we had become somewhat unraveled socially, that we seemed less willing to participate in the symbolism upon which human society is designed to run. This is what I attribute to cynicism and individualism, which seems to have its roots in the cultural trends marked by the Protestant Reformation, European Enlightenment, Romanticism, and into the modern age, as we've discussed. I have to admit I've been thinking out loud the last few weeks. I started thinking about these issues about a year or so ago, actually after reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis. I've been doing some background reading and trying to tie all these things together in my own mind, but these podcasts on the topic have been the very first draft of what I hope I can present more systematically in the future. I hope it hasn't been too haphazard. If you happen to be a graduate student and looking for a dissertation topic in sociology, psychology, evolutionary theory, religious studies, Buddhist studies, or maybe even anthropology, you might be able to do more than I have with this material. But let's consider how Buddhism fits into this. This has always been my underlying concern to get a better understanding from a different perspective of just what Buddhism is, which requires a better understanding of what humans are. Let me first address a question that has undoubtedly occurred to many and brings us back to the topic of Buddhism as self-help. Isn't Buddhist practice an individual pursuit? When we meditate, we meditate alone. Didn't the Buddha recommend seclusion, finding an empty hut, or a place at the root of a tree far from other people, and practicing there? This is true, but the person we bring along to sit in seclusion is a fundamentally social cooperative being. And he brings his language along, his conceptual framework, his intentionality, all of which are shaped by culture. He brings along the Dharma, which is a part of his culture, his mix of ape and human motivations, 
his values and aspirations. Being alone gives him the space to sort all of this out without distraction. It doesn't remove himself from it. Also, Buddhism has many social teachings. So how does Buddhism fit into what we're talking about? Notice, I claim that Buddhism is a part of culture, just like language. Each of us belongs to many intersecting cultures and cultural currents. Even while most of my listeners are probably rooted in American culture, you have come under the influence of a Buddhist culture with its history going back to the Buddha, often called the Buddha Sasana in Pali, which is the name of this podcast. Let's start with the sacred. Is there anything that is sacred in Buddhist culture? You bet. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. For the traditional devout Buddhists, these are landmarks in our lives and by the Buddha's design. Each of these is a source of Buddhist wisdom, and we put our heart into each. Now, this is a matter of strong faith, sadda, but not blind faith. It's also what we call refuge. Recall that the Buddha taught a kind of skepticism unmatched even by modern free thinkers and rationalists, since it questions even our most common sense presuppositions. But skepticism is not the opposite of faith. Cynicism is. The key is to take seriously but hold loosely in order to participate in the serious life, but not to be frozen into a fixed way of thinking. At least this is how I look at it. We develop our whole practice and way of life around the foundations of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all the while trying better to understand what these are exactly and what makes them so meaningful and what it takes to make them more meaningful. The Buddha is for us the ideal of the perfected, awakened human standing in the direction in which we aspire to develop. The Dharma is the ideally wise guide spelled out in detail, touching every aspect of our lives. The Sangha provides the ideal communal context in which we individually can develop according to these ideas, where one can dare to be a non-self. Ideals are, of course, social constructs, and they can disappoint but they provide unambiguous markers around which to structure our world and our place in it and to bring forth the wholehearted devotion that produces optimal results. Across religious traditions, what is unusual about the Buddhist sacred is that it is well within the human realm. Also, the Dharma is not imperative in nature. It's a matter of individual choice, how closely one adheres to the Dharma and its extremely high standards. The Dharma is presented in terms of, this is the practice, this is how we look at things, this is what can be expected if you practice this way and look at things this way. 
There are no commandments from on high. Adherents practice at all different levels, yet they take the entire Dharma as sacred, admire those who hold themselves to the highest standards, and leave that as an option for themselves later. This is why some adherents choose to be in the Sangha and some not. Is there myth in Buddhist culture? You bet, and most of it adheres to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Even in the very sober early texts, the Buddha and many of the monks are depicted as having supernormal powers. And deities and the demon Mara visit them. Deities generally serve to demonstrate veneration for the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, not to receive veneration themselves. This is important to note. Deities are not sacred. They are just characters and myths about what is sacred. Rebirth also has a symbolic function as we find our place in the Buddhist symbolic world. In some of the later traditions, the Buddha himself became an unworldly cosmic being who chose to manifest on earth in human form, perhaps even as inspired by the story of Jesus, which by that time was becoming known in Asia. The Mahayana traditions tend to have more elaborate myths, probably especially the Tibetan tradition. The devotion of many people grows around such myths, whether they literally believe them or not. One of the consequences of the proliferation of myths, however, is the blurring in any particular culture of what is of Buddhist origin and what has other cultural roots. I've tried in my writing to distinguish adept Buddhism from folk Buddhism. Buddhism in China, for instance, gets mixed up with indigenous ancestor worship, and Buddhism in the West gets mixed up with the idea of discovering our true self, the real me, and thereby with self-help. Does Buddhism observe rituals? You bet, and these primarily center since the earliest days around veneration of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Deference in some form is almost certainly necessary in the serious life to enact our place in the symbolic world. Again, we show deference in our very hierarchical society all over the place, but typically with a sense of coercion. And again, we tend to be cynical about it. I've been very impressed by the way Burmese children are taught from the earliest age to show deference to four kinds of people. Their parents, their teachers, the elderly, and monastics. In showing deference to the Buddha, we generally bow to a statue, which is physically just a rock, a piece of plaster, or some other material, but counts as the Buddha himself and the qualities that he symbolizes. We also make offerings to the Buddha, like food, flowers, incense, and water, thereby enacting the care we would extend to the Buddha if he were present in person. Similarly, the individual monk, like me, is a piece of plaster, but symbolizes the Sangha, 
that has kept Buddhism burning for 100 generations. And interesting things about the rituals we use today is how archaic they are. Bowing with hands pressed together is clearly of Indian origin, but is observed throughout the Buddhist world. Monks' clothing might have been fashionable at the Buddhist time and still makes use of no fastener technology that was not known at the time of the Buddha. No buttons, no zippers, no Velcro. Everything is held together by a rope for a belt and modesty. A third source of wisdom for the serious life in a symbolic world worth looking at is theology as it exists in faith traditions. I've been trying to read Paul Tillich and Marcella Eliande, eminent Christian theologians of the last century. I have to admit I find them rather obscure. There seems to be a lot of presuppositions I didn't grow up with. But it seems clear they are talking about the same symbolic world. Tillich, for instance, bemoans the loss in modern culture of what he calls the dimension of depth, a dimension of human experience which most people are only dimly aware of. This dimension seems to correspond to what I've been talking about in more scientific terms as the selfless, social cooperative space humans are designed evolutionarily to inhabit. Tillich attributes this loss to science, technology, and industrial society, which have forced society into a horizontal dimension in which everything is a tool. For a long time, science had nothing to say about the dimension of depth. Therefore, it was assumed to be religious claptrap and poppycock. In our terms, this is a huge loss because it means we individually fall back on our ape selves, self-serving, motivated by the desire for personal pleasure and the avoidance of personal pain. That people are this way has become the basis of economic thinking and our concept of rationality itself. Now that science has something to say about the matter, that there really is such a dimension, maybe we can regain what was lost. The dimension of depth provides an opportunity to be in the world in a distinctly different way. It's where meaning lies. What people find meaningful is to be part of something and have a purpose greater than oneself. And this is found in the symbolic world. Viktor Frankl was an eminent psychologist who, as a Jew, was swept up into a concentration camp during the Nazi era, where people he came to know were dying right and left. He wondered what factors of personality correlated with people's likelihood to live or die. It didn't seem to be general health, age, or frailty. What he concluded was that it correlated well with whether people had something meaningful to return to beyond the barbed wire. Family, religion, professional commitments, all social factors. For him, 
It was his disrupted research in psychology. Next week, I'll make some final notes on the topics of Buddhism as self-help and how Buddhists find meaning in the symbolic world and try my darndest to bring this long series of talks to a conclusion.